Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and I should say now the prize winning Mariner's Mirror podcast because of our recent certificate of merit that we received from the excellent Maritime Media Awards run by the UK's Maritime Foundation. And if you want to know what all the fuss is about then please go back through our audio back catalogue where you will find a little bit of maritime history for everyone from shipwrecks to explorers to fishwives and mermaids. Also please check out our excellent YouTube channel. We're approaching 300,000 views. Let the numbers speak for themselves. There's some really fantastic material showcasing the maritime world in entirely new ways. My current favourite being our latest animation explaining what a stockless anchor is and why it's important. A short clip of that YouTube video has in fact been seen over 330,000 times alone on TikTok where you can find us as well. Anyway, enough talking about ourselves, it's time to get to the matter in hand. And today we're finishing off our mini-series on Maritime Australia. When I visited Perth a few months ago to meet a host of excellent maritime historians and heritage professionals, one of the things I was blown away by was a small exhibition in the Western Australian Shipwrecks Museum of rock art created by Aboriginal peoples depicting foreign ships. I thought it was fabulous. Not only the art, but the broader topic of Aborigines and the sea. To find out more, I spoke with a man who knows more about this topic than anyone else, and it turns out it's the same person who knew more about William Dampier and the Roebuck than anyone else. So yes, he's back and of course I'm delighted to welcome back the brilliant Mac McCarthy. Now Mac spent many years as the Western Australian Museum's Inspector of Wrecks, which led him onto all sorts of fascinating projects. If you want a longer introduction to this force of nature then do listen to the episode on William Dampier and the Roebuck where we explore Mac's CV a little at the start and the more I think about it the more I'm I'm certain he has the finest CV of any maritime historian or maritime history professional, and we should all aspire to be him. Without further ado, here is the multi-talented, multi-employed, multimedia, very chatty and brilliantly good fun, here's Mac. Mac, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening. It's really good, Sam, really good. So let's start by... Why don't you explain how you got into the study of Aboriginal seafaring, their coastal craft, maritime rock art, their depictions of foreign ships. There's so much wonderful material here. How did you first get into it? Well, the first wreck inspector for the museum, Scott Sledge, took a group of people to the Kimberley to look for shipwrecks up there. And while he was there, he was in the company of a wonderful anthropologist, Ian Crawford, sometimes, who spent a lot of time with the Aboriginal people, one of the earliest um, recorders of the Wanjina art, the famous uh, five, four or 5,000-year-old art. And Scott got to know a lot of the Aboriginal informants. And while he was looking for the wrecks of pearling luggers and sailing, and sailing ships and steamers, he was told of rock art at various places in the Kimberley. And he went to a place called Biggie Island where there are some of the earliest known depictions of European-type vessels uh, in the Kimberley. So it was sort of part of our tradition as as wreck inspectors to look more broadly than the shipwreck underwater. And when I was working on the SS Xantho, 
um, a ship, interestingly, that was built over in Scotland and ended up sinking out here with a Crimean War gunboat engine in it, which led to all sorts of strange questions. It led me to the study of Aboriginal people in Perling. And this led us to realise that we needed to know a lot more about the Aboriginal people who seem to have interacted on this ship, the Xantho, mm-hmm. uh, with the people from the islands north of Australia called Malays. And in fact, this chap Broadhurst was involved when the Aboriginal people were doing what we call naked diving. No masks, no fins, no snorkel, nothing, but still being immensely successful. And so it led into a need to find more about them and it led us to a picture would you believe 300 miles inland at a place called Walga Rock or Walgana near near a mining town of Mekathara that some people thought maybe Xantho a student of Aboriginal art in 1987 first suggested that so um, we decided to look into it more and I ended up being given a student, Leslie Sylvester, from one of the heritage uh, universities, and I asked her if she would start studying every known example when Aboriginal people mixed with European people from ships and shipwrecks and stuff. And Leslie did this extraordinary job, and we called it Strangers on the Shore because it was concentrating um, uh, on people who were wrecked in the end. And Ackerbilk's uh, famous um, uh, song was in there. And she did an amazing job and catalogued all of the known times that there was interactions with Aboriginal people and shipwreck survivors and also their involvement with the Xantho, my key interest at the time. So let's just, the, the Xantho, the Xantho, that's 1870s or so, that's am I right, right. There? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually, would you believe, built in the same year as Great Britain? one of the earliest steamers ever made, built as a ferry for working in Ainster, or as us Australians would say, Anstruther uh, in Scotland, and uh, ended up coming out here worn out and um, had a, had this uh, Crimean War gunboat engine put in it and came out here and sank within six months. Right. So she sank in the 1870s but was built in the, 18, the end of the 1840s. And that's just one example of Europeans interacting with their Aboriginal peoples. Yes, and importantly here, they're interacting with them in the pearling industry. And the Aboriginal people are diving for pearls without any equipment. And Broadhurst brings over what we call Malays or divers from the Indies who all proved to be far less able than the Aboriginal people. And he also introduced the hard hat to pearling. So we've got these enormous themes going through. And for a reconspector, this is really good fun because all of these led to all sorts of shipwrecks, uh, all this activity of all various types. And uh, Leslie then produced this catalogue, which is on the web. And then the next thing that happened is that we realised that she was also finding that there was some Indigenous depictions of these ships in her studies. And this led to another one of my students, a chap called Nicholas Bigordon, uh, Nicolas Bigordin, if, uh, to be properly French, even though I destroy the French language. Um, and Nicholas was one of my students, and he started to collate all the known instances of ship or boat depictions by Aboriginal people right throughout Western Australia. 
So we had these two students working with me, Leslie um, working in, a, in 1998 and then Nicholas in 2006, doing this wonderful catalogue. And I think it's one of the first times in Australia, well, it was the first time in Australia these things were happening. And they produced this catalogue which led my department and myself into the study of Indigenous watercraft depictions and uh, Indigenous contact shipwrecks and so on. And at the time, it was paralleling other people's interests, which was more towards the traditional rock art, not so much the Indigenous um, depictions of watercraft. And so that eventually led to an efflorescence of interest by more scholars than I can point a stick at now you know in terms of not just the number but the the their intellect and their ability to analyze such that now there's many people in Australia studying Aboriginal rock art and depictions of maritime rock art it's just extraordinary now Sam. How many examples did you find with the initial research into this? I mean, are we talking about 10 or are there more? One of the leading scholars, Paul Tayson, over here in Australia, he said that Australia has more rock paintings of non-Indigenous watercraft than any other country, with several hundred scattered around the coastline and some at sites as much as a couple of hundred kilometres inland. Particularly large concentrations can be found in parts of northern Queensland, on Groot Island, in western Arnhem Land, but there are smaller clusters in the Kimberley and Pilbara of Western Australia. Drawn and engraved ships can also be seen scattered across the greater Sydney region, into the Blue Mountains, and um, he then looks at the many types, and as I say, there's about 30 or 40 of his colleagues now very busy researching and writing, um, but they can be identified as vessels of Southeast Asian origin. Macassans, wonderful groups coming, looking for the um, Beche de Mer. They're, they're in the 18th century, uh, a very big trade. They would come across here uh, in the Norwest monsoon, stay here for six months and go back home in the Southeast trades. And they'd take Aboriginal people with them sometimes willingly, sometimes not. And you can imagine the effect this had on the people who, who did an awful lot of uh, recording in rock art. I mean, you look at Murujuga, you know, apparently millions of, of engravings there over the years. Well, Aboriginal people took to drawing these ships of these people, the Europeans and Macassans in great numbers. And it really goes back to a long, long way. And the earliest known image uh, that has been found is apparently dating back to around about the 1660s, which mm. predates the Macassans, who are more a 1700s phenomenon. OK, so we're we thinking about the Dutch in the 1660s? No, no. Interestingly, the Dutch don't feature down in our area very much at all. Mm. You know, there's more work being done. But one of the, the things that did happen to me was that they thought that one of the images I was dealing with, which is the one at Walga Rock, uh, 300 miles inland in this mining town, was Zoutdorp or was uh, the Batavia, the famous Batavia. So, you know, there, there, there has been a lot of interest in them possibly being Dutch, but they, they're not. 
And the depictions we've talked about so far are depictions of Macassan ships or European ships. Uh, do they depict any of their own coastal craft? Actually, this is probably the second question. What's the What's the first question? Is did the, did the Aborigines go to sea? <laughs> Tell us about that. They did. They they one of the very first depictions, uh, which people are struggling to date accurately is of a canoe with a high prow up in the Kimberley. And some people are dating that to pre the famous Wanjina pictures, which are four to 5,000 years old. And they arrived around the time of the Dingo with the Aboriginal people. Some of these people are saying are much older than that. And they're indicating they may have been used to cross land bridges, but still a lot of uh, research to happen there. But the Aboriginal people certainly... Uh, were depicting their own uh, watercraft. And um, a map that I've got, um, or got obtained from one of the authors shows um, a raft ranging, you know, from bark canoes uh, to um, dugout canoes um, to simple outriggers, triple outriggers, uh, all sorts of things, right across the eastern seaboard, right through the Murray-Darling, right around Tasmania, all the way across the um, northern area, Queensland, the Northern Territory, uh, some in the Pilbara, but none at all from uh, Sharks Bay down to Adelaide. So it, it's really a, quite an enormous spread, and these are of their own watercraft. I just want to pick you up on something, because you mentioned the arrival of the dingo, which is an interesting maritime story in itself, isn't it? Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, I'm out of my tree, obviously, even though I love dogs. Um, Dingoes, <laughs> I remember travelling through India um, and in various parts of India I sat down, there were these dogs there and I'm, I sat down and looked at them and I thought, they're dingoes. And this was only a few mm. years ago, I attended a conference in Delhi and I thought, my God. And this is before I'd actually read about this. But the dingo is reputed to have come across with Aboriginal people or some some of the Aboriginal people four to 5,000 years ago. Now, obviously, uh, Aboriginal occupations of Australia are going back 50,000, 60,000 years, but the dingo itself comes in about that time. And interestingly, this is a similar period of the famous Wanjina, the uh, people from the Kimberley. So you have different groups of Aboriginal uh, dating of Aboriginal folk and then you have the dating of the introduction of the dingo. Um, so they, those dingoes have come across from Southeast Asia, it appears, and obviously they've had to come in vessels or, well, walk a land bridge, but I think there was, there was never a straight land bridge. There was a gap. Absolutely. And that brings us back to this question of the Aboriginal people's uh, seagoing craft. And we've talked about this canoe with a high prow. What else do we know about the ancient Aboriginal seagoing craft? Well, various explorers talk about uh, the layered raft. It's actually called Mm -hmm. in some circles a Bardi raft, which is, uh, say, about five logs of timber on top of five logs of timber. And it's nailed together because my one of my books is about ships fastenings. And I refer to the Aboriginal watercraft as being one of the very first vessels ever made. And they held these things together with um, tree nails, which are made of timber. 
and there's many examples of them. They're quite beautiful. And uh, Dampier describes some in, in various places, but they, they are seen by explorers, early European explorers, in the Kimberley region. And even though Dampier was uh, up in the Kimberley himself, he doesn't describe one of these Bardi rafts or the Aboriginal rafts. So he had rafts made of logs um, held together with tree nails uh, and, of course, with, uh, with any form of uh, root and things like that. You had the, the canoes made of bark, which are taken from a tree. You had uh, canoes and, and rafts that are bound together with twine, which the French explorers saw down in Tasmania. Oh, were they the kind of bundles of the bundles of sticks together all bound up? There's a there is one rock art depiction of that that I've certainly seen. Yes, oh, you will have seen a lot. And so they're seafaring in the extent that they are certainly going across estuaries. You've got the most glorious picture of a man called Samson Jangalili in the Kimberley. Uh, he is standing on one of these Bardi rafts, double layered rafts, and he's using his body as a sail. I think. If he wants to go faster, he stands up with his back to the wind. Slower, he goes side on, even slower sitting down. And there's another magnificent image of two women uh, on one of the rafts with dingo pups. This is in the Kimberley region. So they didn't have the seafaring boats that we know of, but they used the massive tides to go miles and miles to islands. I mean, some of our archaeologists are finding occupations on islands 10, 15 miles offshore into Kimberley. And Kimberley is magnificent to go to, but very difficult and dangerous. And they were going back and forward. Have they got kind of of seven-metre tides or something? Oh, seven-metre tides and enormous tidal races. And they They were clever people. And I've actually got a quote here. One European, the celebrated Northern Territorian, Bill Harney, regarded Aboriginal nautical abilities highly, considering them good seamen, and for years of hunting had given them the the feel of the ocean. And in the late 1930s, this particular author, I think it's it's, uh, Roberts is his name, he quotes a man called Charles Barrett, was amazed to see five young boys arrive in Darwin in a dugout canoe, having travelled 400 miles along the coast. These Argonauts of the Arafura Sea, he remarked, make canoe voyages that Richard Highclute would have loved to have chronicled. Uh, It is just, it was a glorious statement um, I felt in this one. And uh, another man um, who spent four years uh, trepanging or beshtemir in Western Arnhem Land was so accustomed to seeing Aboriginal crewmen that he said that the appearance of a lugger without blackfellows uh, was worthy of note. This is quite uh, extraordinary quotes that researchers are picking up from people. So they certainly were great sailors. They certainly um, were seen on board the ships. Uh, And in another one, I told you that the Aboriginal people left sometimes willingly with the Macassans to go back to Macassar sometimes unwillingly. Some were found in the slave markets. And apparently recent DNA research is showing uh, that there's, uh, um, they're certainly mixed with the Macassan people over the years. So the interactions are enormous 
and their presence on boats, larger boats, as the Macassans and Europeans came in Bechtemir and Perling, is ongoing. So they certainly were very good mariners. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. I was very interested in some of the depictions of European vessels on in um, Aboriginal rock art. Uh, there was one with a curious... Uh, image at the stern which took some bit of um some big bit of unpicking until someone realized it had something to do with cattle is this enough for you to tell me about what i'm talking about yes, i it didn't is really i just I, I got the image in my head well this is again the xantho which led me um into these two or my two students into these studies and and they went on to other greater things but what happened is at a place called indanuna indanuna station inland of cossack where Xantho often came in, and Cossack is the home of Pearling before Broome got established. There's this image of a ship, obviously a sailing ship, with a character sitting on what's the what we now know to be the boiler. Oh, and there's smoke coming out of this very long um, smokestack. But after it, there's a mizzen yard with this thing hanging off the back which no one could work out what it was. Yeah, it's got limbs and a head, obviously. It looks a bit like a mermaid, it, perhaps. Exactly, <laughs> it does. And I was showing this at a lecture in Geraldton on Xantho and other work, and this chap said, oh, I know what that is. And after the lecture, while we're all having beers and stuff, he raced home and bought a picture, and he was on a ship where a cow uh, had appears to have died, in the hold, and they raised the cow up by its horns. I'm hoping it Mm. wasn't alive. And it is identical to this image that we've got at Indonuna. It is a cow being hoisted by its horns. Now, not only did the Aboriginal people record this steamship in their midst, which must have been, oh, my God, look at this, because they recorded uh, women with long dresses, men with guns, horses, sailing ships, but they recorded this steamship and then this cow's coming out of it and they recorded that. Just jump in. It's one of these wonderful images from art history where it looks incredibly strange and you'd never guess what it was until you see exactly what it is. And they, they've drawn it perfectly. So you've got the you've got the two front let limbs you can see split, but from the angle of what's shown, you can only see one hind leg because the other one's hiding it. So if you see this suspended cow from the right angle, it looks... I mean, it's, it's exactly... 
exactly what they've drawn. Oh, it's it's brilliant. And one of the reasons we think we know it's Xantho is that Xantho was built in Glasgow uh, and it was a paddle steamer. And it came out here and they removed the paddle engines and put in this Crimean War gunboat engine um, and put it all aft. And they got themselves a boiler from Robert Stewart Metal Merchant in Glasgow. But the boiler was 10 foot diameter when the ship only had nine feet from the top of the deck to the hold. So the boiler stuck a foot out of the deck. Right. To do that, you put a housing on it. And in front yeah. of this animal is a man sitting on a boiler. Uh, and, and it's clearly, yeah. <laughs> it fits all the configuration of Xantho. And so this is why we think one of, one of the very few ships in Indigenous rock art that's been identified, and you can't say 100%, but we think it's Xantho. We actually think we've identified it in two places, not just this place called Indanuna, which is where uh, Xantho was based, but we also think it appears in an ancient rock art gallery at a place near Kew or Mikathara, in Western Australia, a, a mining, a gold mining town, 300 miles inland. And for many years, people thought it was a Dutch East Indiaman because they thought they recognised three masts, the middle one having fallen down, and square gun ports. But what happened is, eventually some of the anthropologists asked the question, hang on, that's not a mast fallen down, it might be a funnel in the middle. Mm. And so we were able to show that it fitted exactly the archaeological configuration of Xantho with a funnel in the middle. And wonderfully, when reading the builder's contract for building Xantho, they said it had to be like the Loch Lomond, which had been built the year earlier. And we found a model of Loch Lomond and it had square scuttles, not round scuttles, right. square scuttles, which when you see it, you want to draw it, it looks like gun ports. You can't go running around saying 100% as you know, but what you can do is we think this is going to be Xantho. So that's just one of them. But these authors, these many, many authors have done just wonderful things in studying these now. And it's, it's not just the maritime archaeologists who are writing about them, Sam. It's all these other uh, wonderful people. All of this wonderful work on indigenous rock art, does it, it must have demonstrated how important indigenous perspectives are to studying shipwrecks in particular in colonial settings. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, look, that is such an important observation coming from you because one of the things that happened over the years, there was a ship called the Stefano that went down mm. with 20 young men, the oldest was 25, off the Ningaloo Reef in a cyclone. Two men were survived eventually because the Aboriginal people carried them and chewed their food and all that sort of stuff. And then the Aboriginal accounts about Stefano and other things were largely dismissed because people were pretty paternalistic. But you wouldn't believe in later years we found references to other, found other shipwrecks near Stefano that actually fitted exactly the Aboriginal stories. And right. we started to realise, well, I knew pretty well anyway, but we started to, oh, I managed to prove in one of my papers that Aboriginal legend, if we're properly listened to, 
is generally corroborated as an event that has occurred in the shipwreck world. Um, mm. uh, there was numerous examples of it on the on the coast where the Aboriginal legend was proven um, to be correct in, in relation to shipwrecks and pointed to shipwrecks being there. Oh, it's just wonderful. And and for you to have seen that in the readings has been really good. It's, it's an affirmation and there's a most wonderful affirmation, if I could give it to you, it's not to do with shipwrecks, but it's in 1834, a chap called George Fletcher Moore was a diarist and he got to know the Aboriginal language. He respected them and they respected him. And he said, the Aborigines are in these parts tell of the land between here and Rottnest Island, one day filling with water and great noises and fires. And he describes all that. And he said that was one of their legends. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, people are starting to read about tsunamis and they're starting to read about sea level changes. What the Aboriginal people had told George Fletcher Moore in 1834 about these sea level changes was true. So they've more and more, and a lot of my work's been involved in this, their accounts have been shown to be true accounts. Where things go wrong is when you try and date it. They, the dating, as one uh, scholar said to me one day, they tell it as if they were there, even though it might be thousands of years or hundreds of years ago. And with the ship, I love that. That's a lesson we could learn. I think telling it as learn. if it's there is oh, what a yeah. brilliant idea. The more you read about Aboriginal depictions, Aboriginal interactions with shipwreck survivors, the more you read about their legends, the more you develop a growing respect for the way that they've recorded their world. It's a wonderful place to finish, Mac. Thank you so much indeed for your time and your, your thoughts again and also your work on this. And I hope it'll inspire more people, I think, to look at um, Indigenous perspectives and all sorts of maritime history. There's so much there. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you must go back into our back catalogue and check out the other seven episodes on Maritime Australia, starting with the Dutch arrival in the 17th century, going right through to purling luggers and dry docks. It's an Australian cornucopia of facts and stories that will, without any doubt, improve your mood. It'll improve your knowledge. Well, I'll just say it. It'll improve your life. Please do everything you can to spread the word about this podcast. It's growing fast, but you can help it grow faster. The podcast is nothing without you fabulous listeners. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you're listening that way or just tell people down the pub or the bridge club or a walk on the beach wherever you find yourself. Please remember that this podcast is produced by both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and be sure to check out their amazing new project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. They're filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. I'm involved with it. It's absolutely fantastic. Also, please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find them at snr.org.uk. It's a brilliant way not only to find out about the maritime past, but also to meet people and go and visit brilliant places. We're all getting ready for our annual dinner on board HMS Warrior at the moment. It's one of the most extraordinary ships ever built. 
In fact, if you're jealous and you've missed out on a ticket, then the best thing to do, of course, is to listen to our podcast on HMS Warrior and watch our very clever little animation of her original ship plan, which is in the collection of the National Maritime Museum in London, which we bring to life in 3D. That's it. We're back soon with an episode on castaways, something I've been wanting to do for years, both record an episode and also abandon everything and go live on a desert island. So if the episode doesn't come out next week, then, well, you know what's happened.